Well, uh, let's turn to John chapter 14 together, and we're looking at those first 14 verses. And Jesus tells us there, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus responded, I've been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. However, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When I was about eight or nine, maybe seven or eight, my grandfather started taking me once, a week, once every other week to get my hair cut. Uh, his, he's a good guy. His name was Ed. Good name, strong name. And he, uh, he would, we lived right around the corner from my grandparents. Um, he, would, uh, he would pull the cover off the Lincoln Town car in his garage. And I'm amazed this car fit in any garage because it was like 27 feet long. And he'd pull the top off it, you know, and it only went out on the weekends. And uh, we'd go out on Saturdays, I think, and, and he'd pick me up and uh, I sat in the front seat with him. Uh, and he had these like beads on his seat. I don't know why the beads are there, but I, they do something. And we sat, I sat on the beads. I remember, these are the, these are the things I remember, right? Being in my grandpa's car. I remember how it smelled, I remember the beads. We listened to uh, news radio. Uh, which was really cool and exciting. And, um, and then my grandfather would drive me to his barber, which I could only really describe it as an old man barber shop. That's the only way that I can honestly describe it because the barbers were very old guys. The guys waiting to get their haircuts were very old guys. And then there was me. Um, and uh, from what I remember when I think back, there was never a point where they would like, you know, what would you like? You know, how can we, what do we want to do here? Uh, it was just haircut, you know? And I'm pretty sure in this place, you just got a haircut. That was it. Uh, my grandpa went, cut it shorter, you know? I sat down, cut it shorter. And when I was done, uh, they gave me a little piece of bubble gum, and uh, that was it. And then we went to uh, Thrifty's, which was a place that served, amongst other things, it's like a Walgreens, they have ice cream. They'd like shoot it out of this tube thing. Um, and uh, he would take me to Thrifties, and we would get ice cream. And there was all these different flavors. And my grandpa would say, he'll have that one. And he would just point, and they would give me a flavor of ice cream. He was really good with kids. And, uh, 
and I, thinking back, like there wasn't a lot of options in, in my, uh, you know, haircut ice cream dates with my grandpa, but they were good times and I'm really grateful that we had them. Um, and also to be fair, like the years following when I did get a choice in haircut, it was not like an uphill thing. You know, it was like a dramatic decline in terms of how I looked um, when I got to be in control of that thing for a few years while I figured it out. Um, I do remember though also going to this ice cream place with my grandpa and even at that time I knew that the parents that were in front of us oftentimes with like a four-year-old kid should not be doing what they were doing when they went, what do you want? You know, what kind, what kind do you want? And we were all behind them. Because watching four or five-year-olds decide what flavor ice cream they want is pretty awful. Uh, and and, and uh, even then I knew this is probably not the way to do it, right? And then you learn when you're a parent that it's all about, you know, choices. But you have to kind of control the uh, parameters of the choices to hopefully steer maybe to an outcome that you would like. It's the illusion of free will, as you, as you like to think as a parent, right? Uh, you know, put your clothes on, they don't. Put your clothes on, they don't. All right, listen, you have a choice, okay? You can put your clothes on, you go to the zoo with us, or you can, uh, you can not put your clothes on, we're gonna leave, we're not gonna come back, okay? Which one do you want? It's your choice, right? Yay, good choice, buddy, welcome, good choice, you know? Um, his choice, right? Uh, Choice is very important to us. The older we get, the younger we are, we kind of get used to not having as much of a say. But the older we get, the more choices we want. This is maybe the most American thing that there is. Choices, right? When we go out, we want choices. Hence, uh, the Cheesecake Factory menu, right? We want anything, like anything. If I want it, it better be here on this menu and you better be able to make it in 15 minutes. Or we go, no, I want one thing and I'm going to go to that place in Portland that only makes that one thing, but they make it with a million different choices, right? Because that is what it means to be an American. God bless America, right? I should have given this message on 4th of July. Um, One of the most infuriating things to people about Jesus was that he didn't give a lot of choices. He didn't give a lot of options. Usually he gave one and then they just had to decide what they would do. And people often decided in all sorts of different ways. Nowhere is this more apparent than I think in this passage where Jesus says that he is basically the way to everything. Jesus is about to leave, and he's told his disciples, I'm leaving. And they're worried, and they're sad. Uh, they're sad because they want to be with him, and they're, total, they're sort of confused, even though he's explained a lot of things to them already. And they have two major questions. The first is, where are you going? Because they want to be with him again. They want to see him again. They're not ready to be done. And the second one is, now what? Now what do we do? I mean, You were supposed to teach us about God, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not exactly acing it right now. Pretty much every time you open your mouth, we don't think you're going to say what you say, and if we were going to finish your sentences, we're not very good at that. That would be a funny game, right? Like the disciples trying to finish Jesus' sentences. Just be way off every time, it seems like. So where are you going? Can we see you again? And then uh, what about now? Now how do we find God without you, 
You're showing us all of these things. What do you expect us to do? And so Jesus responds in this time of worry by first telling them, I'm going to my father's house. He's preparing a house for you. And the good news is that it's for you and me to share together. So you'll get to see me again. And we'll be in this house. There's lots of rooms. You can have your own room. Don't worry. We don't have to share if you don't want to. I'm preparing a way for you. And then the question is, so then how do we get there to this house? And still that remaining question of, but what now? Speaking of the Father, speaking of God, how do we find God? How do we know God? Because you're the one that's been telling us and showing us everything, and we don't feel like we've got it all figured out yet, Jesus, so what in the world are we supposed to do? The overwhelming feeling that the disciples have when Jesus is ending his ministry is they are not prepared for Jesus to end his ministry. So his words to them are this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus' response to them answers these questions that they have. Telling them, number one, you go to the Father's house through me because I'm the way to the Father's house. But then he continues on to explain that you'll know the Father, you'll know about the Father through me still because I'm the truth and I'm the life that is found in him. There are three basic conceptions in the Jewish faith that here Jesus is saying that he's all of them, all three of them. The first is this idea of a way, of a path, a way forward. We read about it all throughout the Old Testament. You you read about it here in Deuteronomy. You shall not turn to the right or to the left. You must follow exactly the path that the Lord your God has commanded you. That to follow God is a path and to stay on that path because it's the right path. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people, I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly, turning aside from the way that I have commanded you. I've told you the way, and I know that when I'm gone, you'll turn aside. You won't want to even stay on the path or the way, even though you know it's there. So any part of you that says like, uh, I just want to know the way to go. I want to know the path. I want to know which one is right, right? Have you ever heard this phrase? We want to find the path. We're seeking the path, right, to life or the the way of truth. What Moses is saying to the people is, ah, from my experience with you guys, you're going to get off the path even when you find it for some reason. And in Isaiah, we read this from the prophet, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You hear about this in Proverbs, this idea that wisdom is to walk in a straight line, right? Uh, To be wise is to not do this with all your decisions, wasting all your time, foolishly making bad choice after bad choice, but instead going in a straight direction because God doesn't intend for us to walk in a maze or to be in a bunch of circles or to be all confused. He intends for us to get on the path and walk in the way that we're supposed to go. Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way to go if you want to get to God. So if you want to get to his house, everything I've taught you, what you know of me, is that. And he says, if you know me, you know the Father. Meaning, not just if you understand these things, but if you have a relationship with me that continues on after I'm gone, not physically there with you, you will be on the path. You'll be walking in the right way. To say that I am the way to the Father is like you go to a new town and you say to someone, can you give me directions to this place? And they start explaining it to you and you go, I'm having a hard time understanding. And they say, let me just stop what I'm doing and I'll show you. 
They are the way. Follow that person because they will take you there. If everybody just showed us how to get places by saying, follow me, we would probably get a lot of places easier. But most people aren't willing to drop everything they're doing and say, I'm going to give myself to simply being the way that you will follow to get there. Because it was true that people didn't want to stay on the path. And so Jesus comes and he's like, all right, fine, I'll kind of keep you guys on the path with me and I'll keep showing you the way. He says, I am the way. He also says, I am the truth. This is another big part of the Jewish understanding of what it is to know God. Psalm 86 says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. So this way and this path is a path of truth, meaning everything else is false. Not just there's a lot of different options and things, and here's the good ones, and here's the bad ones, and maybe this one will work for you, but it wouldn't work so well for them, and because you're from this culture, this makes more sense for you, but it wouldn't work for that guy. No, it's between truth and what is false. And Jesus says, I am the truth. In me, you will find truth. In everything else, you're going to find something much worse than just wandering off. You're going to find false things. You're going to find lies. A lot of people have told us the truth, but no one has ever really embodied it. And if somebody proposes to teach moral truth, this is the way you should live, the way God wants for people to live, that person has to be able to embody it. I learned this in college as a philosophy major. I learned this when I would attend classes on ethics, and and, and I would have teachers who did not in any way embody the things that they were teaching. Now, that doesn't matter in a math class as much. It doesn't matter in a history class as much. Uh, But it matters in an ethics class. I'll make ethics really simple for everybody. You ready? Do the right thing. Be good all the time. All right, go. Like, it's more complicated than that. Because life is complicated. And situations are complicated. So if what you're teaching me is supposed to be true, then I should see it in your life. If I don't see it in your life, then it means nothing to me. It's nothing but a bunch of words and and maybe wishful thinking. And Jesus comes and he actually does these things. He lives out these things. That's why when you read the Gospels, that's why you should go read the Gospels and say, oh, look at what Jesus did and look at what he did and look at how he treated that person and this person and this person because I know what truth looks like because Jesus lived it out. He says, I'm the way and the truth. And the other thing that the Jewish people constantly were focused on was this idea of life. This idea of real thriving life. That there was not just deception and darkness. There was not just being lost in the way, but there was death. Jesus says, I'm the way to life. And there's a lot of things leading to what they call life, but according to Jesus, there's only one way to it. It's not because it's the easiest way, it's not because it's the quickest way, but it's not also because it's the hardest way, the longest way, or the most mysterious way. It's because it's simply the one true option in a world full of fake ones. Why is his way life? Because it's true. And there are so many things leading to claim, claiming to lead to life. To life on earth, now, real life, abundant life, life after death, but Jesus is the only true one. And and he's not saying, so do what I say and you will find life. Be obedient. He's not saying, learn my commands and you will find life. Uh, Knowledge. He's not saying, act like I do and you will find life. He's saying, in me, you will find life. Know me. 
And what this means is this. All of what he's saying to them is this. Faith, real faith, that brings you out of darkness and gives you life and puts you on the path that shows you God. Real life is faith in me. Faith in Jesus. He says, you are to have faith in who I am and to know me. Real faith, the only kind of faith that matters in this world, ultimately, is faith in Jesus himself. If we are about who Jesus is, seeing him in the word, understanding what he was like, talking to him, and as hard and abstract and crazy as it sounds, being in a relationship with him, if we do this, we find life because faith is in him. This is hard for us because what the Bible tells us is something that we talked about last week, which is that we are obsessed with us. We are obsessed with our needs. We are obsessed with our problems. We are obsessed with our intellectual questions. We're obsessed with knowing ourselves. I mean, how how weird is that, right? In a world where, like, the one thing I can say that I know about, it's me, what I want, right? And talking about choices, right? And yet... In a world where I know me and I don't know anyone else, what I am the most obsessed with is knowing myself better and you knowing me better, which is why in community, like we said last week, what we really want is we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be known. Why do we use these words and want these things? Because there's something in us that's broken that says, I need to be the object of this thing, and the more that I can be seen and known and understood the more real my life will be. What Jesus is saying is no. Me. He's saying you need to see me, you need to hear me, you need to know me, and if you know me, that's where life is found. Knowing me personally. And what you have here is Jesus telling us that. And there's a difference between believing and knowing. But you can believe something's true. You can go, yeah, that sounds true. I believe that's true. But that doesn't mean that you know that thing. You can believe that a person's true, but that doesn't mean that you know that person. And there's a huge difference between really knowing someone and knowing about them, understanding things about them. It's to say that you know him and that he knows you. My wife's uncle owns... um, well, her family owns a bunch of restaurants in the town she grew up in, in Bakersfield. And, and they're, they're pretty popular restaurants. And they've been on all these TV shows and everything, and like uh, the diners and drive-ins or whatever and all that stuff. And, and they're always busy, always busy, especially when we want to go, which is in the morning. And, uh, but you know what? We go whenever we want. You know, we just, after church, we're like, let's just go. You know, we don't need a call, whatever. We'll go. We'll be like, hey, Uncle Mark, hook us up, you know? Why? Because we know him, right? Yeah, everybody else knows who that guy is. Everybody else knows that restaurant that goes there. They go, oh, no, I know about him. I know. I've seen it on TV. Hey, yeah, I'm a big fan. Okay, great. You got to wait in line. But we know him, right? And so we drop the name. We get the red carpet rolled out, right? At a diner in Bakersfield. It's a pretty big deal. (laughs) One time, my mom and me and my kids went to Ellie's grandfather's diner, and he had been retired for years, and he hadn't been there in who knows how long. My mom's like, the waitress is there. My mom's like, she's about to walk away, you know, but 
See this guy right here? He is married to the granddaughter of the owner of this, well, the founder, not the current owner, but the founder of this restaurant. You know, the lady was like, great, you know. We did not get free food that time. Uh, to, to, to really, to know someone is uh, different than knowing about them, knowing things that other people know about them. You see, general ideas and understandings of a God figure have actually proven to be pretty disastrous over the history of humanity. People saying, oh, God, right? That's a big word. That means a lot of things to a lot of people. Well, God cares about, about this, and so you now have to do this, right? People use the idea, these general ideas of God to promote legalism. God wants everyone to obey. And so here's all the rules. In fact, let's add 10 times more just to be safe. Oh, really? You're not sure? Well, I don't know if you've ever heard of God, but he's perfect and he wants you to be pretty close to that. So let's get going, right? Or, or God believes that there are the right people, his people, and that other people need to be like his people. And so because of that, I'm going to treat you pretty badly, but it's okay because, you know, I'm one of his people, and he cares more about me than he cares about you. This God that I serve has wrath on, on so many people, and so that's why you're seeing wrath from me and seeing wrath from this. This God is angry, which is why I'm angry and why you see anger in the things I do, uh, this God thinks that, that revolution should happen and it should be violent and I can hurt you for my cause because it's, it's big enough and he's standing behind me. Ideas of aspects of God are dangerous and misleading and can go anywhere. And much of the time that people complain about Christianity, they're not actually complaining about people who were genuinely knowing Jesus. They're complaining about people who were using the idea of God and some of the things that the Bible talked about to promote their own thing. This is why Jesus says, know me, here I am, I've lived it out, I've shown you in all the things I've done and said, and in all of these ways, you can know who God is. If it doesn't line up with me, if it's not something that I would do, that I have done, not a way that I have acted or treated a person, then you can be pretty sure that it's not the heart of God. You know everything you need to know. This is a big deal for the disciples who are going, Jesus, it's been a couple of years. We need a lot more teaching. He's like, no, you've seen everything you need to know to know who I am. You've lived with me, and so go out and make sure that what you do is consistent with what you've seen with what you've known of me. And if you come across something that says it's God, that says it's me or the gospel or something else, that it's the way, the truth, or the life, and it isn't me, and it isn't what I've done and what I've said and what I've shown and how I've been, then don't believe it and don't follow it because I am the way. So, Faith is in Jesus himself and in nothing else. That is the thing that we find it in. But if you're going to do this, if you're going to actually say, fine, I will give myself and my life to trusting you, not as one of these three things, but as all three of them, 
You're not just a good teacher, but you also illuminate absolutely what is, what is evil, what is true. And, and in fact, goodness is embodied in you, so I have to know you personally to have life itself. If, you're gonna, if, if, if I have to believe in you and have faith in you, Jesus, for all of these things, then why would I do that? Why would somebody do it? For Jesus to say, you have to have faith in me, is so we are no stranger to the idea that we would love, we would love if a leader came along who could actually unite all of us. Right? Somehow, one year during an election cycle, someone came along and they, they were able to somehow make us all happy. They were able to give you what you want and me what I want. They were going to bring us all together. And, and, and it was enough. It was close enough to what we wanted that we all said, is it possible that this is finally what we've been waiting for this whole time? Because this is what a Messiah, the people thought a Messiah would be. A Messiah would come and they would bring the Jewish people together and they would put them back on top and they would lead them and they would once again be God's people and be the best. Now imagine that that person is elected and that person's here in our country and they're there in their inauguration. They stand up their inauguration speech and the first thing they say is, all right, everybody, I'm God. What? Then immediately we're like looking through the paperwork. Is there some kind of clause? Is there a way that we can get out of this thing? Uh Uh-oh, he said he's God. That's not good. That's not good, right? Okay, we all agree we shouldn't have done this. Okay, let's go back. That's how it felt to people when Jesus started forgiving sins. You know, you know, you know when Jesus would say like, oh yeah, I, I, I helped that guy walk and I gave that blind guy sight, but forgiving sins is a bigger deal. You're like, no, it's not. Helping him walk is a big deal. Blind spine, that's a big deal, right? Forgiving sins, that's cool, but like these other things are a lot harder to do, it seems. No, because it was blasphemy for Jesus to say, I can forgive sins, because he's saying, I'm God. So he comes as the Messiah, and he says, why should you trust me to be everything for you? Is because I am from God himself. And everybody's like, whoa, that is okay. Hold on. And what do they do? They kill him. Because what he's saying is so blasphemous. Why on earth would anybody believe somebody who says something like that? And Jesus says to his disciples, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying to them that faith in me comes from evidence. And the evidence is the things that I've done. He's like, guys, look around you. What have I done? What if this person standing up there who said, I am God, then started doing crazy, fantastic things that were clearly supernatural and miraculous? Then you'd be like, well, hang on a second. Let's see where this is going, right? And this is what Jesus did in his ministry. He did these things that showed people, oh, okay. Maybe he really is. He clearly teaches and speaks and acts as one who has, they always say, authority, which means he's not insane and he's not lying. He's from God. Jesus does not expect us to believe blindly, to trust blindly. And there are a lot of people who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because it's what they've been told and they never really question it. And they're like, I'm good with that. But at some point, everybody gets to a point when the rubber meets the road where they go, well, wait a second. Why am I actually believing in this thing? And he says to his disciples, believe because of the things that I've done that can only be explained by the fact that I am all these things I say about myself. The church itself 
our faith, Christianity, historically is built on one act. And the one act is this, that Jesus, after he died, three days later, was resurrected. That he was physically resurrected, not resuscitated, not brought back after a really long time in a coma or something, that he was dead, and then he came back. And not only that, but no one, I don't know if you've noticed this, no one expected him to come back. In fact, they were like, what do we do now? Because when someone's a Messiah and they get killed, they are no longer a candidate for Messiah. They are a failed Messiah. It happened. It happened plenty of times. 150 years later, after this happened, the rabbi, uh, where's his name? I have his name somewhere. Simon ben Cassaba was killed by Romans in AD 135. And when he was killed by Romans, he was no longer a possible Messiah. He was a dead, past, fake Messiah. And yet when Jesus died, he was resurrected. And the entire church is built upon this act. Now, when I was in college in my undergrad as, as a philosophy and as a history major, I regularly encountered um, this mentality that, like, you know, there's not actually, you can't prove something like that. People would often say, you know, you know, we, you know, things need to be able to be proven in a laboratory, you know, because that's how history works, right? You only believe things in history that are proven in a laboratory. That makes a lot of sense. We have to be able to, if we can't prove these things, you know, then we can't even really, well, we're just going to assume that they're not real, that they didn't happen, because, you know, we don't believe in that kind of stuff. And then as I got to seminary and I began studying the evidence for the resurrection, it was over, overwhelmingly in favor of the resurrection, which explains why a church would start with a group of people who killed someone now following him. Because that's what the church started with. Hundreds of Jewish people. Jewish people. The people that killed Jesus saying, okay, fine, we believe. And what would cause these people to do this? The earliest reference that we have to the resurrection is actually in the epistles, because these epistles were written sooner. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church in Corinth, he writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Paul says to these people in the early church this statement about Jesus. He says, this was given to me. It wasn't uh, communicated to me like a game of telephone, person to person to person to person. But it was given to me, not only by people who were directly there themselves, but, but by God himself. And this letter that he's writing the church is, is, is like, it's like, a, it's like a public document. It's a letter to a church. Anyone can read this letter. Anyone can get access to this letter. And he's saying it because he's telling people, hey, right now, most of these people are still alive. You can go right now and ask these people, these hundreds of people, what they saw. And you can see and hear the testimony of people who were actually there. He's not hiding it. 
He's not explaining why they won't see evidence or why they won't see testimony, but Paul is doing the best job he can to say to people, go talk to them and you'll find the truth of what happened. And because of where they lived and because of things that were occurring currently in that time, uh, it was actually really easy to go see people. And it was really easy to get to where this happened and to find out. Jews themselves believed in a single God, not multiple gods. And so when someone comes along and indicates in any way that they are God-like, that they are from God, that they have the power, the ability of God, that they should be worshipped, that they should be uh, revered in that way, it was considered blasphemy. And yet hundreds of people, Jewish people, worshipped God, worshipped Jesus as God all at one time. Pascal once famously said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. What that means is, uh, if you're going to believe somebody, maybe believe an eyewitness who dies for the thing that they witness. There are, uh, and the disciples, uh, the apostles, these people who witnessed the resurrection, would go on to be martyred for and to give their lives for this thing. So either... Well, assuming that they made it up, that they went, man, we've invested three years into this. Some people are actually kind of interested in us. How could we maybe make ourselves a big deal? I know, let's just tell them that he resurrected. Let's all get together and agree to a story that he was resurrected. We'll learn how to be good public speakers and teachers. We'll go around devoting the rest of our lives to this message so we can be famous. But how many of them were crucified themselves? Some upside down because they considered it uh, a disgrace to be crucified the same way Jesus was. History is filled with people who are martyrs for something they've heard secondhand from another person. History is not filled with people who are martyrs for something they themselves witnessed. And yet the disciples and the apostles are those people. There's also the fact that when Jesus uh, was resurrected, the first people to see him in the accounts that we have are women. And I'm just saying, this kind of came across wrong in the first service. If you were going to make a story believable, at that time, you would not say that the first witnesses are women. That would be the equivalent of nowadays saying it was like young children. Because women's testimony at the time wasn't taken seriously, it wasn't accepted in court. And in fact, historians agree that it's likely, it's very possible that the early church leaders were pressured heavily to change this part of the story. Listen, this would be way more believable if you didn't have women as the first people that saw Jesus. Can we just throw a couple disciples in there? You know, maybe Peter felt bad. He was there saying, I'm sorry, I abandoned you. Oh, it's Jesus. People will buy that. We know it's true anyway. So just change that part of it. And the fact that it's not changed tells you how much it had already caught on to people that they couldn't even change that part of it. That these unreliable witnesses were the first ones that would see Jesus and would attest to the fact that he was resurrected. There's the fact that the disciples themselves are not painted in a very positive light, we can say, during the death and resurrection of Jesus. If I'm going to write an account of myself, I'm going to make sure that it sounds a lot better than I abandoned him three times. We all ran away scared, didn't know what to do, ended up fishing, were crying, and uh, oh yeah, and then he came back, right? There's the fact that when Jesus is resurrected, the way that they describe him, it is as though they are searching for words to describe something that they don't have the ability to describe adequately. They say he was, he was physically in another body. 
He ate food with us. He had scars, and yet he passed through walls. We didn't know who he was at first until he then told us who he was, and then we saw who it was and that it was him. If you were going to say that a God had been resurrected, you would say they were shining, they were floating, they were shooting laser beams out of their eyes. You would not say these things that they are struggling to say, to communicate with their words, because it's like, how do we describe this in a way that is accurate and that makes sense? One of the biggest arguments against the resurrection is simply the assumption that people thousands of years ago believed in resurrections more. We have this incredibly arrogant view of history where we go, well, we have, you know, like atoms and, and medicine, not atoms, A-D-A-M-S, they had those, but atoms and medicine and things like this and science. And so we know that stuff can't happen. But back then, man, they believed anything except for the fact that no one had ever been resurrected from the dead ever. So they didn't believe that. In fact, to them, being resurrected from the dead was crazy, uh, which is why, even though Jesus alluded to it, no one even expected that it would happen. No one thought it would happen. When a Messiah died, no one said, maybe he'll be resurrected. No, he wasn't. They just gave up and they walked away, just like the disciples did. They walked away and they were ready to be done. In fact, uh, the thinking of the time was that the Spirit is good and the body is bad. And so if your spirit gets a chance to get free from your body, then it is not going back to a body because bodies are, are wrong. There's no way that a God would choose to come back in a physical body and, and, and re-inhabit it. Resurrection physically like that is not something that happens. Even the idea of, of, of reincarnation and, 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 and taking on new forms is to the idea that you come to a perf perfected ver version of something. Because the body that we live in now is flawed in and of itself. Everything about the resurrection was as counter the culture and the group of people then that it would be now. And yet, because of the way that it happened and the evidence that was there and the believers who witnessed it, it began a worldwide movement that started with the very people that killed Jesus because they believed that he was a blasphemer. Now, I don't know about you, but I live in a world where once people are against something, they are against it. They maybe move a little bit one way or another, but rarely do you see people become for that thing. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm not asking you to believe me for no reason. I'm not asking for blind faith. I'm asking you to have faith in me because I've given you a reason to have faith in me. To have confidence, which is what faith is. If you, if you interpret the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek, it is a confidence that comes as a result of evidence that proves that something is true. Just be confident in me. I've shown you why. And for those of us that say, no, if God was real, if this was real, then he would give me miracles like crazy right now. And many of us have experienced miraculous supernatural things. But we see in the Bible what happens when God's people say, I will not choose you unless you give me something today. Those people are called the Israelites. Things did not go well for them. Because every time they ask for something and they expect God to intercede, they go, I promise I'm going to remember this time. And God's like, remember. And they don't remember. That's what God tells his people again and again. Remember what I did. And they don't remember. Because we don't remember. 
And Jesus tells them to have faith that comes from evidence. And so what happens when you actually get on this path and you find this truth and you get life, when you've seen a reason to believe in it, what does it do to you? Is it, is it gives you new life? It's very clear the way Jesus talks. He's not just talking about heaven. He's not just saying, if you believe in me, you'll get to be in my father's house, which means you get to go to heaven when you die. He is talking about the fact that you become alive the moment that you believe in him. That you are born again, that you have new life in him, and that from that point forward, you're alive. Whereas before, you were perishing and you were dead. He gives us faith to live. He tells his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says to them, if you then are in me and if you know me, then you will do the very things that I have done. And this is the part that we all care about, the part where it changes your life and it makes you new and it gives you something to look forward to and it maybe even makes you better. But this is opposite of the way that we think that a new life happens. Jesus is saying, believe first and you'll then be different after. Most of us believe that if we act differently now, that belief will come. That, or that, that faith will come, that spirituality will come, right? If I do these things, then I'll be good with God, and then I'll have this spiritual relationship with him. And he says, no, it works the other way. You believe, you trust, you live in, you know, and then you will find that you are transformed. Not through you trying really hard, but through it happening. You will do the things that I have done. But it isn't just about wanting to make us better, it's about wanting to do something through us. Because a traditional view of God is often that he is at odds with this world, that he is the enemy of all of us. That he's against it because it's vile and evil and that it's corrupted and must be let go of. Now theologically, there's truth to that. That sin has made us enemies to God. And yet the story of the Bible tells us what Jesus teaches is that God is not at odds with us. He is reconciling himself to us. He's drawing us to him, and he is even going to us. He is a pursuer, he's a rescuer, he's a redeemer. And so he says, if you have faith in me, you'll do the things that I do. And what I do, what Jesus has done, all the miraculous, all the amazing that you've seen, is all stuff to bring people to the knowledge of the fact that they can be alive. There is only one truth. There is only one way. There is only one life. And so I now want you to be the bearer of that for others. And when we reduce all of this, following Jesus, living for Jesus to it making us better at what we already are, at what we already are doing. That is the definition of a small view of God. 
even though it's what most of us come to religion looking for, come to faith looking for. The Bible tells us that he lifts us up. He sets us on our feet. He gives new breath, breathes new breath and new life into our lungs so that we can what? We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and set out to go buy a new Subaru because that's what he wants for you. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath to fill our lungs so that we can finally be empowered to step out in faith and start, finally start a new business from home. The thing that we've been afraid of doing for so long, he says, you can be courageous in me and take a step of faith. I am empowering you now to go and to do this thing. Don't believe the haters and the doubters. Know that you have life in me. We find ourselves lifted up. We are set on our feet. We are given new breath into our lungs. We are resurrected. We are given a new start. We are brought back from the dead of our old deeds, all the bad stuff we've done, all of our bad decisions, and we are able to begin again to make good choices. That is what we have been given new life to do and new breath to do. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and finally given the self-confidence to get out there and live each and every day of our life, not some days, not the weekends, but each and every day of our life, like the adventure that it really is. This is our life now. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, now finally able to parent our children with a true sense of joy and patience. That baby does not need more food, right? It's, I'm saying his face, his expression. He's like, please, no more food. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and now falling more and more in love each and every day with our spouse. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and like we talked about last week, finally given the community that we long for, a set of friends who see me, who hear me, and who know me. The Bible tells us that we are lifted up out of the pit. We are given a new song in our mouth. We are given a new breath in our lungs. We are given a new life. And that the response to that life is that we raise up our hand, not only in worship, but to say, here am I, God, now send me. Because the life that we've been given is the greatest thing that we've ever experienced. And the more we become aware of the fact that it is the only life that is out there, it changes not just the quality of the way that I live, it actually changes the very thing that I live my life for. It changes everything that my life is about. Faith in Jesus is the faith to really actually live. And that's not to say that the Bible is not a source for the wisdom that shows us the things that, that help us in our families and in our relationships, in our community and in our world on a practical level. But 
It is not meant to make us better versions of those things. It's meant to show us who we really are. God says, come with me and I will send you. These disciples went after this. They went out with this message and they were so fulfilled. They were so joyful. It meant so much. It changed them so much that they gave their very lives for it. And they died with peace and with joy, knowing that they were going to the Father's house that Jesus was preparing for them. We love choices. We love having the ability to choose. And Jesus does one of the hardest things ever. He says, you can choose, but I'm not going to give you more than one. I'm going to tell you, this is where life is. And he then makes us do something that is so hard. He makes us decide if we are willing to change to accept that thing. Not to be better people. We want to wait along for the thing that feels right, right. The thing that feels the easiest. The thing that fits the most with where I am and who I am and what I've come from and what I've done. And he says, that isn't how this works. Most of the tension you see in the ministry of Jesus is people coming to terms with the truth once they see it. People coming to terms with the path once they're on it. People coming to, true, to terms with real life when they start to experience it. And them deciding what they'll do. Even though he doesn't give lots of options, we are grateful because if he did, we'd probably choose something else. All of this is what it is because Jesus died and he was resurrected. That's why he says to his disciples before he goes, I want you to remember what I'm about to do. I want you to take communion. That's what we're about to do as Pastor Matt comes up here and leads us. As we worship, we respond to this. We respond to the fact that he made it possible for us not to step blindly with no reason for believing, but to believe with confidence that he did what he said he did and that we can have real life in him.